Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of the Complete Performance Podcast with me, Dr. Josh Williamson. Firstly, just a massive Happy New Year. I hope it's been off to a fantastic start. This is the first episode of the new year, and Dips episode came about from putting out on socials what was it you wanted to hear from because there's one thing me trying to get in contact with guests or putting content out there but unless it's actually helping you and unless it's actually getting to what you want then it's very hard to engage with it and very hard to relate to it and so I put out a poll what do people want to hear from and the big big topic was around binge eating so this is what we're going to jump into today so Go and grab yourself a cup of coffee, maybe grab a notepad and pen, and let's get stuck into episode 10. So the first place to start here, I just want to give a a bit of context. I just want to preface this episode. We have to understand that binge eating itself and binge eating disorder are probably two separate things and that has to be distinguished and we'll move through this as we go out the episode but one one thing you'll find common across both of those is that there's a very very strong emotional link so the first thing I would say is if any of this does leave you feeling upset or emotional then please feel free just to turn me off and allow yourself to regroup and then maybe come back to it at a later stage you know sometimes these conversations can bring things up that we maybe just didn't think were going to come up through through an episode like this the second thing is that when it comes to binge eating disorder there might be a lot of hard to swallow pills that come from this episode and here is sort of the first one that always comes to light very very quickly Now, this might make some of you stop listening right now. And this is a conversation I've had with people, you know, who want to work with me. They say that this is my goal, but when we start delving into it, we don't end up working together because maybe they're just not ready for it at that time. So one thing we have to understand is that if you're unhappy with how you currently look and you're trying to diet, you're trying to lose weight, but you find that you're what you find that you're you know frequently or regularly binging then you need to stop dieting and that is that's so difficult to hear because in your head you're wanting to achieve a certain look you want to be a certain weight you have this overemphasis of changing your body shape and when someone's telling you you need to stop that and you need to work on solving the root cause of the binging first that's very very challenging and I've had conversations in the past where people have we've had this conversation I've brought this up and we just don't work together because that person just maybe isn't ready to confront that right now and so they'll end up inevitably going to work with someone else who will cause them to lose weight or will try to drive them to lose weight but all it does is makes the problem worse and then they come back to someone like myself with a bit of integrity hopefully that isn't going to put your health at risk so that you can be a certain weight and we actually have to sit down and really understand how deep this issue goes okay so you can't lose weight 
and binge and deal with binge eating disorder at the same time? Well, you can, right? Theoretically, you can, but the likelihood is that you'll only make things worse in the long run. The next thing I want to touch on is just to give some context because what I found recently is that not just binge eating disorder, but eating disorders as a whole are really trivialized. And it's it's heartbreaking in a way because we throw around things now like even the term anorexia or anorexic is synonymous with thinness. Or we, you know, on the other side of things, we throw around things like, well, you don't look like you have an eating disorder or you didn't look like you have an eating disorder. You know, we say things like this without really realizing the impact of it. So let me hit you with some statistics first, just about general eating disorders, because I think it's important that whether you yourself, someone you know, or even if you have no experience with an eating disorder, that we understand just how severe and how debilitating this can be. So worldwide, there's around 70 million people suffering with some form of eating disorder. Okay, that, that's, that's a lot of people, and that's only the people that are probably diagnosed. Within those people, 50% of them don't feel like they actually deserve help. Now, that's people who come forward. Imagine if you don't have an actual full-blown eating disorder. That you maybe have some disordered behaviour, some disordered attitudes, whether it's towards food or even towards exercise. Do we feel as if that's severe enough? And I'm saying that almost tongue-in-cheek. Do we feel as if that's severe enough to warrant help? That we deserve support on this? Two in three people with an eating disorder feel like they'll be labelled an attention seeker. Like that's... It shows you where a lot of this comes from, that there's a very deep emotional root here. The same percentage of people don't feel as if that an eating disorder is actually a real condition, which there's some there's some medical professionals who would say that as well. You know, we might, we might hear it, we might know that it's in our vocabulary, we might have been taught it, but we don't actually think that it is a real thing. When we compare across genders, 90% of women will put their health at risk just to achieve their goal weight. Now, when we aggregate that across both males and females, we tend to see that it's, it's around 70% or so. But imagine willing to risk your health just to achieve a goal weight. Now, that, that, that delves into a deeper question. What do you think that that goal weight is going to bring you? 30% of people with an eating disorder practice self-harm behaviours. Now, is that the actual eating disorder itself? Or is that some form of additional condition going alongside that? That's something that we'll maybe discuss as we go through this. But to speak on to sort of to bring that point further, about 25% of people, one in four, will attempt suicide. So one in four people with an eating disorder will attempt suicide at some stage. Now, you've probably seen the trend here that as I'm giving you these statistics, they are getting a little bit more severe as we move through it. 
and it's because I want to share this last one with you which is particularly scary someone dies from an eating disorder every 62 minutes like is that not just insane like this is where this is where we're at and if you look at the top 10 chronic conditions eating disorders is around number 3 but when we look online when we look in our textbooks when we look elsewhere you'll see that it's things like diabetes cardiovascular disease heart disease you know all of these different types of conditions but you rarely see eating disorders talked about so hopefully that gives you some context and you know not only the severity of what we're talking about here but the complexity of it the way that i'm going to lay this out is to give us some context on the definition moving right through to what does a binge actually look like then looking at some of the factors that might tie into it some of the causes of a binge what initially triggers it at the start what perpetuates it and keeps it going and then we'll maybe finish on some of the treatments but i think it's important that we actually understand what is a binge and what is binge eating disorder and this is this is a big one i think it's always important to to clarify terms first you know it might sound silly but words have meanings and sometimes we throw around words very loosely and and binge is no exception so people will often say oh i binged at the weekend but does that mean that you have binge eating disorder you know because most of us will, will overeat in some capacity you know i had a pizza at the weekend had some dough balls had some garlic bread maybe had a couple of sweets after that i wouldn't necessarily classify it as binge but other people might you know we can destroy that large pizza or we can eat so much of a sunday roast that we need to be rolled away from the dinner table but for a lot of us we can just enjoy that and move on with our lives so let's actually get into what are the main characteristics of a binge what separates it from just a period of overindulgence binges have two main features and it makes them very very distinct from just an episode of overindulgence or eating a little bit too much over christmas the two things that we almost need within a binge are the amount of food that we've eaten has to be excessive now this is relative this is how we perceive the amount of food so for example i could view overeating by 500 calories that's excessive so that would be my first tick box of a binge but you might feel as if 10,000 calories is that's excessive and so if you eat 2,000 calories extra that's not a big deal so it is relative the second thing and probably the most important one is that you feel a sense of a loss of control when you sit down to sunday sunday dinner or even if you get a takeaway you're probably eating it and it doesn't feel like an outer body experience you know sometimes people will describe it as that outer body experience or almost that they're trapped in their own body but they don't have the control over it now those are two things that we want not what we want but those are two characteristics that's in a binge but there are other characteristics that maybe come secondary to that emotions and feelings are key and you'll see me talking about emotions and feelings 
throughout this episode. Things like pleasure, joy, intense enjoyment, we often get that very short term. You know, when we sit down, we eat the food that we've been craving, that gives us a lot of satisfaction. But that's followed then by feelings of shame and disgust and repulsiveness and maybe feeling worthless and feeling like a failure. The second one is the actual speed of eating. This can be described as sort of eating mechanically, you know, very much like a robot, very rapidly. Sometimes you would describe it as just not even chewing at your food. Now, I sort of joke with a lot of people I talk to about mindful eating and, you know, most of us on a day-to-day basis tend to just shovel the food in as quick as we can because we're we're late to get to the next thing that we need to do because we're all so busy. But we do t- we do try and still break it down. And it's just because we eat rapidly doesn't mean that we have binge eating. Remember, these are secondary characteristics. We need to have ticked off the first two first and then we look at all of these additional factors that might contribute to it. Now, depending on the severity, some people will often combine eating with a lot of fluids. Now this this happens, or the reason for this is maybe twofold. In some instances, by eating and filling your body with a lot of fluids, you then feel bloated. And it gives you that satisfaction of feeling full. Other people though, use it as a way to purge later on. To, to vomit later on. Because if there's a lot of fluid in your stomach, it makes it easier for the food to come up. Okay. The next one is irritability. So sometimes binge eating is referred to as you know compulsive eating because it, it can drive you to eat. Now th- this happens on a spectrum. It can be very very mild. So it can just be like agitation. It could be it can be fidgeting. It can be wandering back and forth, or it can be on the other end of the spectrum where you'd be driven to go to the shop in the absence of hunger. And sometimes at unsociable hours, like I hold my hands up here and be fully transparent. The very first time I ever lost weight, this if you want to like consciously or purposely lost weight, was to do a physique show. Now, looking back in that time, I done cardio every single morning, fasted, I trained with weights five days a week in the afternoon or evening. And done that for, I think it was around 12 weeks. And I lost about 50 pounds in that 12 week period. Now, I didn't know any back. I'd know any better back then. I was young, I was naive, but I lost a lot of weight. I thought it was gonna bring me a lot of confidence and happiness. And, and probably at the time being 18, 19, I thought it was gonna, you know, a- a- attract, <laughs> attract girls at that time. But turns out no one really cares what you look like. But right after that competition, because I had ticked that goal off, I didn't have any anything to aim towards. And because I was so restrictive for so long, I ended up binging. And even my my the coach that I had at the time even said, I want you to have um I, I want you to have some sort of takeaway every day for the first five days. Like when you look back at it now, it was it's so mind-blowing the things that were just considered normal. But that slowly then developed, well not not slowly, quite rapidly developed into binge eating. And with that binge eating, I remember going to the supermarket at like one o'clock in the morning, 
just to get stuff because there was this desire, this drive just to go and eat. So you might find that it is, you know, when you're not hungry, your body's pushing you at these unsociable hours. It could be even even more extreme. You could be eating other people's food. It could be shoplifting. And by doing those things on that extreme end of the spectrum, it then ties in with the, the strong emotional response that we get from binging. So this exacerbates those feelings of guilt and shame and disgust. A bit like the, the, the loss of control that's key to binge eating, some people report like a feeling of altered consciousness. So it can almost feel like a blur or a trance. I don't know if you've ever been to a rave. Maybe you have, maybe you've taken some recreational drugs and it's just been the best time of your life. But that's what sometimes it can, it can feel like. It's just what happened last night. It was just all a blur. And eating becomes this automatic experience. Now, other people use a distraction so they don't have to think about what they are doing during a binge. So they'll often watch TV um, or, or, or do anything just to distract them from this process. Their body's still doing it. They're still shoveling in you know, this excessive amount of food or what they deem to be excessive. But we feel like it's a trance or feel like it's a blur. Another thing that I see really common when it comes to binging is because it is tied to feelings of guilt and shame and disgustedness and repulsiveness and all of these, that we tend to be quite secretive about it. And this is something that, you know, it's something that you'll probably hear yourself when you talk to people, um, especially close friends who you would, you would be close enough to that would, they would talk about their eating behaviours or losing weight or anything like that. You, you might often hear, why can't I just eat like other people? Why can't I eat normally, in inverted commas? Or how come this person I know can eat X, Y, and Z and look like that? But with binge eating disorder and even other eating disorders, because there is these feelings of guilt and shame, they often try to hide it and will often go to great lengths to do so. So to give you a couple of examples, if anyone's ever watched Skins back in the day, but there was an episode of Skins where I can't remember the name of name of the girl in it now. Someone's going to be shouting this at, at me, but it was the blonde-haired haired girl who was talking about having an eating disorder, and what she would do is do a lot of talking to the people that she's eating with, and then push the food and mash the food on her plate so it seems as if she's actually eating stuff, but she hasn't, and then she gets up and leaves. You know, someone will, have, will will know what I'm talking about, but because there is this secretiveness ab about it, people will go to great lengths to try and hide it. So. It might mean that we eat in a normal manner when we're around people, whatever you d define normal as. But then when there's no one watching or no one around, they'll go into the kitchen and they'll have some food or they'll have a secret stash of food in the room. And so when we, th this is really difficult. It's not just relating to eating disorders and binge eating, but this is really difficult because when we look at people's eating behaviors around us, we often think, well, why can they eat that? Like I put up on my my Instagram today about I was eating a, a lint bunny. Unbelievable. Now, is, do I do that every day? Of course not. It was just leftover from Christmas. But 
if you looked at my story, you might think, well, how can how can he eat that? Why why can't I eat that and and still lose weight or whatever our goal is? And that's because you only see that snapshot. You don't see what happens on the rest of the day. Maybe I've had to restrict my calories for the remaining of the day. Maybe I've maybe I've actually went to the toilet and purged and got rid of that. But you think that I've that I've eaten it, or maybe maybe the best one. This is the the influencer favorite. Maybe I just took a video of me taking one bite and then didn't take the rest. You know, so we just don't know. But because we see it in our own head, we then make these assumptions. The next one is loss of control, which is obviously that's a core feature. But the the way people experience it is different. So there is this very interesting point here, is that for people who have been binging for a long time, this has been going on maybe years. They actually believe that their binges are inevitable and if their binge is inevitable then they can they in their head they can control how they respond to it or they can plan for it and this is what we call setting up a, a self-fulfilling prophecy so a self-fulfilling prophecy is when an individual has some form of belief it's usually negative about their own behavior and then their actions confirm that belief so let me give you a completely different example that's outside of the world of nutrition. You might have a belief that for some reason people just don't like you. Okay? And then what happens is when people do invite you to something, people want to hang out with you, maybe you want to go for coffee, is that we then withdraw from those. We decline the invitation because we think people won't like me. Now, as a result, people just think, "Oh, well, I've asked that person four or five times, and they just declined, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask them anymore because there's maybe something going on." So they stop those social approaches. But to the individual, that confirms their initial belief that well, people clearly don't like me or they didn't invite me, and this just keeps going round and round, and it's the same sort of thing here. The problem is is that if we think that we're in control of our binge, it's just a false it's a false assumption. Because the person actually isn't in control of the situation by planning around their inevitable binge. And we know this isn't the case because pretty much everyone who says that once a binge has started, it will run to completion. Okay, so it doesn't matter if the binge is interrupted. If the doorbell goes and we have to go down or we have a meeting, if it's mid-binge, we will have to go back to it. And so we don't actually have any control regardless of how we try and plan it. Now that then leads on to, well, how do people binge? You know, so there's different aspects here. You know, we could talk about the types of foods, the sizes of binge, you know, are binges the same, this type of thing. But, Let's look at maybe the, the frequency and duration first. And frequency and duration is probably one of the most controversial areas when it comes to diagnosing binge eating. So just to preface this, when it comes to when it comes to binge eating disorder, which is almost a clinical eating disorder, and we talk about just binge eating, they're two different things. Binge eating disorder, disorder 
is characterized by a very specific set of criteria. Okay, and they usually use the DSM-5 criteria. And it, within it, within its criteria, it states that for binge eating to be diagnosed, it must happen a minimum of once per week for a period of three months, three consecutive months. Now, the issue with this is that it undermines people who are, who are still severely affected by the disorder and it presumes them to be less important, which isn't the case at all. And I say this is controversial and quite contentious because obviously of that reason, if you've experienced binge eating yourself, it doesn't happen every single week for three months. So with the frequency and duration, what most clinicians will do, will actually look at it on a case by case level. Is the individual having regular binges? But also are the binges affecting the individual's physical health and or their quality of life? In terms of the duration, again, this is something that's highly variable. On average, it tends to last one to two hours. Now, the reason why this is variable is dependent on whether the individual has intentions of purging or vomiting. So if the intentions are to vomit, then the binge tends to last a shorter amount of time. We think that the belief here is that if I leave it a short amount of time, if my binge is an hour and I try and get as much food in as possible and I'm going to be sick and I'm going to, be, I'm going to vomit and I'm going to purge, then there's less time for the food and the calories to be absorbed and so we can get it out of our body. The next factor to tie into is once we've understood the frequency and the duration is maybe to delve into the types of foods. And, and this is... This isn't really a surprising one for, for anyone who, who's experienced not even binge eating disorder, but just binge eating in general. You shouldn't really be surprised about what foods we binge on here. What tends to be the main variable is how we feel about a certain food. Because most binges are on foods that you're probably trying to avoid. I haven't came across many people who are binging on bananas or watermelon or you know, broccoli. There may be some, but certainly in, in my time, that hasn't been the case. So it tends to be foods that we're trying to avoid. Now, let me give you the very typical example. Monday to Friday, after the weekend, people think, right, I ate bad over the weekend, I had a little bit more food, I'm going to be good. There's red flag number one. I'm going to be good this week. By saying that we're going to be good, we're labelling a food as good or bad. We're being very dichotomous with our thinking and very all or nothing. These are the good foods, these are the healthy foods, the clean foods, the foods that we're allowed and here's the foods that we're restricting. All that does is really sets us up for failure. Those foods that we deem to be bad or unhealthy or forbidden, at some point we're going to have a wee piece of that. Maybe we have a square of chocolate and we think, uh-oh, that's it. That's triggered it. And then we think once we've smashed down the chocolate bar, we think, you know what? Stuff it. I really enjoyed that chocolate bar. The diet's ruined now. You know what? I've also been restricting the ice cream as well, so I'm going to have some of that. And I might as well have it all now and I can restart again on Monday. That's the real typical example. 
the other example is sort of the toxicity around bodybuilding culture and you know meal plan culture and all of this you know it's no real surprise then that yeah stick to this for 12 weeks do this we know that it's unsustainable but what people don't tell you is the amount of binging the bodybuilders and people do after photo shoots or competitions and that that's true for other very physique orientated sports but bodybuilding seems to be very very prevalent of it in terms of size like size is very very individual you know because obviously the core fa- the core factor in, in binges in addition to loss of control is the amount of food needs to be viewed as excessive by the individual as i said i might think that 500 calories is excessive but others could think that a th- you know 10,000 calories are excessive you know if you if you go on to youtube and type in 10,000 calorie challenges some people can smash that down with with no problem other people struggle to get to 10,000 so they might view it as excessive now these smaller type binges they they're generally referred to as subjective binges and they're more common in people who are trying to diet so if you think about okay i'm eating 1500 calories if i have 500 calories you know that's that's 500 calories above my my target so you know to me that's that's a binge i i, I overate by you know i had a chocolate bar and i had an extra bagel you know I, I shouldn't have done that so that's excessive to that individual and these subjective binges are common in people with anorexia as well but on average most binges are around say a thousand to two thousand calories sometimes we might think it's more but it's it's actually not there's only about 20 25 percent of binges that are over 2,000 calories and there's only one in 10 binges that are over 5,000 calories so the actual amount on average one to two thousand it's mainly about how we view that how we view the amount of food now now that we understand with regards to the types of foods, the size of the binges, the frequency and duration, I said multiple times that a lot of those are individual. So does that mean that all binges are the same? Probably not. Probably not. So as clinicians, we tend to be quite, we tend to have a, a very objective criteria for what binge eating is. You know, if we look at the the DSM five criteria, you know you're going to see things like recurrent episodes of binge eating. You're going to see things like associated with eating rapidly, feeling uncomfortably full, excessive amount of feelings even when or excessive amount of food even when not feeling hungry, feeling shame or embarrassment or guilt or any of those emotions, possible distress when binge eating. Um, as I said. The the contentious point is on average of once a week for three weeks, and then not associated with recurrent use of inappropriate you know compensatory behaviors, so like purging for example, and it does not exclusively does not occur exclusively during the course of anorexia, bulimia, or any sort of avoidant or restrictive food intake disorder. So that tends to be the very strict criteria for um, binge eating disorder but it just like most most things when it involves human beings it's just not black and white like that 
some people will classify their binges and this this isn't necessarily documented within a lot of lit- literature but you'll see within some textbooks some people will refer to their binge as a full-blown binge it's a half binge or it's a slow motion binge so like a, a slow motion binge it's one you can almost see coming i know when i'm going to binge because maybe today is really stressful you know something like that but even on top of that there are there are certain binges within distinct groups of people so if we look at people with anorexia for example they tend to have smaller binges but with all of the distress of a larger binge okay because obviously how they view themselves how they view their body they view that again one of these subjective binges 500 calories that's excessive so it comes with a lot of emotional weight if you have someone who's possibly overweight they can find it difficult to identify when a binge starts and when it ends and then if we look at something like bulimia that can often last all day because it might go hand in hand with purging now the million dollar 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 question of course is not necessarily are they all the same but how do binges start in the first place and that is that is the, the golden question and the unfortunate thing is is i can't tell you because there is no one specific trigger you know what we tend to do with a lot of this stuff is you know treat people like people treat them like actual humans talk to them try and gain data of course but try and gain their experiences as well and see well what is the common patterns and this is one of even when we come down to actual individual treatment it's one of the things that we want to see well when do binges occur why did they you know why did they occur what triggered it how long does it go on all of this data so we can build up a pattern so i'll give you a list of what tends to be the most common things and then you might find that yes my trigger is in there or often the case is there's not one sole trigger it's often a collection of triggers so i said at the start that dieting you shouldn't diet or you almost can't diet while having binge eating disorder and so it shouldn't really come as a surprise then that under eating in itself is one of the primary triggers because restriction it's you know, any diet and it doesn't matter what way you want to call your dad what way you want to set it up doesn't matter if it's weight watchers slimming world doesn't matter if it's anything every single diet that's that's purpose is to lose weight for the individual involves restriction of one or more things and any sort of restriction is going to lead to some form of physiological and psychological pressure and this is often referred to as bursting the dam and sometimes at some stage that dam is going to burst because that physiological and psychological pressure from the restriction is going to burst and then it can be difficult to stop because if you think about a dam bursting full of water how are you going to stop it it's going to be nearly impossible and this is when binges then go until completion and we see this all the time like even not to not to trivialize and undermine binge eating disorder but very very simple day-to-day thing of people will often ask me josh i can't stop eating in the evening okay well let's look at your day-to-day diet well i get up in the morning i have a coffee 
I don't, I, I don't have time for breakfast, but I, but I get, grab a coffee on the way or I get it out the door. Okay, great. So what you've done now is you've taken appetite suppressant so you're not going to be hungry. Okay. Then we get to lunch. What do you have for lunchtime? Oh, you know, like, I maybe didn't have time to, to prep lunch or, you know, I, I've been trying to really watch my weight. So I had something light, having me like a chicken wrap with some salad or I had a bowl of soup with, with a slice of bread. You know, that's okay, isn't it? It's like, okay, well, what do you have for dinner time? Well, you know, dinner time, like, I'm just, I'm starving at dinner. So I have a good, I have a good meal. Like it could be my beef and potatoes. It could be chicken and rice. But then after that, I just, I can't stop. Even though I've just had a good solid meal, I just can't stop snacking. And it's because the hunger is catching up at that part of the day. You know, we've restricted all day. And sometimes the restriction, you know, sometimes binges do happen daily. Sometimes they happen weekly. Sometimes there can be a longer period of time between a binge. But something is as you know confined as 24 hours as that. Not eating breakfast, having a light lunch, and then all of the calories and hunger catching up at the weekend at the, at the evening. Like that's a really really common thing. So under eating, definitely a trigger. But as I said, how we label food, how how we perceive food, is going to be another thing. So we know the people who tend to binge on foods that they restrict or they view as bad or unhealthy. So obviously it's not really surprising that once you have a little bit, we can't stop. Emotional state, because we are feel, you know faced with feelings of guilt and shame and disgust, things like additional stress, feeling hopeless, feeling lonely, boredom, irritability, anxiety, you know, anger, aggression, depression, they can all trigger a binge. Our emotional state and binging almost goes hand in hand. And in some cases there's almost what's the chicken and what's the egg, which which came first. Sometimes the emotional state can trigger the binge. And then once we've binge it goes back into feeling more guilty, which then you can see how it gets into a very, very vicious cycle. Or sometimes it's the other way. Sometimes the binge itself, for example, under eating may be the primary trigger for the binge, which then makes us feel stressful, anxious, irritable, which then perpetuates another binge. Unstructured time, again, even look at week weekends and weekdays. Most people tend to have less structure at, at weekends compared to week the working week. So when you combine unstructured time with feelings of boredom, it can just be a recipe for a binge. Alcohol, we all know it impairs our judgment. You know, if we've ever went out on a night out, we know that it impairs our judgment. And <laughs> not even with food, but it does um, impair our ability to resist any immediate desire that we have. Unless you've had too much, <laughs> of course. But it can also be a depressant. So we have this, on one side we have, it will impair judgment. It'll impair our ability to resist any sort of immediate desires. But it can also be a depressant as well, which then only aggregates that emotional trigger for a binge. Being alone, again, it's with the secretive nature of binges and with any sort of eating disorder. Being alone, being secretive, it means that it's going to increase the probability or risk of a binge. Other things like feeling fat, gaining weight, PMS, they're all confounding variables here too. So hopefully at this stage we're starting to build up a bit of a picture that flip, there's more to this than calories in versus calories out just 
eat less, move more. But if you do suffer with binges or binge eating disorder, you're probably seeing a lot of pieces falling into place here and, and being able to piece things together in your mind as to, okay, well, maybe I have more of an idea now of maybe why this is happening. Saying that we've covered how a binge starts, it's, it's probably only appropriate then, how does it end? Because just like any binge has a start, it has to have an end somewhere. And as I said, it, it's subjective for a lot of people about when when it is when it starts when it ends yes the average might last between one and two hours but there are some common experiences that people report when they're having a binge the first thing is because sometimes the emotional state triggers a binge or restriction itself around food there can be intense pleasure relief and satisfaction from a binge because now we've like we've hit that spot it's like oh but that's very very quickly followed by feelings of guilt the shame the disgust the worthlessness you're a failure and and they're common across most people who experience binges but you yourself may be someone who then experiences an additional desire of punishment or compensation now, this is usually a motivation of underlying fear of weight gain or physical sensations such as bloating. So, as I said earlier, some people who binge will do so with a lot of fluid in combination with food because they know that they're going to purge. And so that feeling of bloating is almost the next trigger or their next sign that, okay, well, that's your signal to go and purge now. Other people who might be on a very restrictive diet and binge, they have that fear that flip, I've ruined this week's progress and I'm doing a photo shoot in three weeks or four weeks. So now I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to do an hour's cardio today or tomorrow or two hours of cardio or I'm going to hit 15,000 steps. There's a condition placed on the binge. And so they're trying to compensate for it or punish themselves. Now that we have some sort of context around that and around binge episodes, the severity of them, both both acutely and chronically, and that you know seventy million people worldwide experience them. Why do people not seek help? You know that's that's a really important question. You know because a lot of a lot of our data is only on people who actually seek help. So. I guess we could go a number of different ways with this. One of the things is is that, you know, around 40 years ago, it was estimated that, you know, 5% of people tried to look for help. Now, thankfully, that number is on the rise. The unfortunate thing is, is that the average eating disorder lasts around five to six years. Okay, on average, five to six years. That's that's a long time. And one of the things that I can't really convey across a podcast is the sheer amount of mental capacity that an eating disorder takes in your mind. It's, 
it's just an unrelenting battle almost and you know sometimes i'll talk to people or talk to talk to clients about what they're experiencing and they will say like this occupies every ounce of my mind imagine that going on for five or six years you know i i do believe that there still is a stigma around things that happen in our mind you know and you see the saying all plastered over social media which before i say it i totally get the sentiment of it i get the reason why people do it you know it's not okay or well it's okay to not be okay it's like no it's not like yes i really appreciate the sentiment but it's not like imagine you had a broken leg it's okay for you to have a broken leg no it's not we wouldn't we wouldn't apply that same narrative to any other piece of our body if you broke your neck it's okay to have a broken neck no it's not like get it fixed you would get it fixed if you fell and cracked your skull it's okay to have a cracked skull it's like no go to the hospital get help for it but it's okay to not be okay it's well no i understand the sentiment yes we it is okay like we have to be accepting um we have have to be empathetic and compassionate and, and all of this but we need support imagine having a bad back imagine having a broken leg imagine having anything for five to six years like but when it comes to the mind we're just still so stigmatic about it and so when it comes to this here you know we could put the speculation out that a lot of people out there are suffering for a long time before they actually seek help and support and you know what's what's the reason for that i mean that's a rabbit hole in itself you know i think i think the feelings of guilt and shame and all of that that are associated with binge eating disorder because people go to great lengths to keep it a secret by by seeking help you're shining a light on the issue that something is wrong here and i i get that's the sentiment of you know it's okay not to be okay that's what like we're trying to be accepting of it but we need to be able to bring light to the situation be able to speak about it but because there is feelings of guilt and shame and being secretive about binge eating disorder we just don't because people do feel worthless they also feel that like they don't deserve help you know they feel as if they're going to feel I'm a attention seeker like i've had clients not necessarily with binge eating disorder but who've had experiences with other eating disorders and nothing directly related to the binge eating disorder itself or the or the eating disorder itself it's just had an effect on maybe another event or an experience and they've been called an attention seeker like so this isn't like this is just something that's happening like this is a real thing that people experience that they've been called an attention seeker and now they feel as if i'm just wasting people's time here by going and seeking help the, the follow on to that is that you know other people just don't feel as if the severity of their binge eating is bad enough and that for others it'll often go on its own they feel as if they're not good enough at times that they're not worthy of help that even though they're going through day by day feeling like this is just unrelenting that 
it's still not bad enough to go and seek help or they're hoping that you know maybe they have done a bodybuilding show or a, fit, or, or a photo shoot and they're just like oh, I've only done 12 weeks of that and this will go away on its own and often it won't the next reason is more of like a financial reason which often isn't talked about now as great as the healthcare system we have in the UK and Ireland when it comes to eating disorders just don't get me started on it because it, I will end up going off on a rant you know we have we have so many people now who've been released and deemed recovered who are now in this state of quasi recovery which I'll not get into right now but even when we look at other countries around the globe that don't have free healthcare because you know we would all be lost we we can criticize all we want about um, maybe not necessarily the NHS but you know, the powers to be but there are there are countries out there who don't have that um, privilege but insurance companies won't cover some eating disorders so again it could be a financial reason and then the other sort of the very conflicting point that I, I would also think is that some people out there feel as if their eating disorder benefits them more than it harms them. You might think, like, how, how could that possibly be the case? But the example here could be that the individual has experienced or is continuing to experience really stressful, really intense life events or emotions, and the binging is acting as if uh, as their emotional coping mechanism binge eating disorder is very closely linked to our emotions and that's just not not that's not just negative emotions it's also the pleasure that we get from initially binging now it, it does honestly it, it, it breaks me every time I, I i come across people who you know who are really open with with any eating disorder because i know that number one they have been struggling with this but number two that if they're actually sharing it with me or with anyone that they're putting themselves in a very vulnerable vulnerable position it's not a place where they want to be and so it's likely that it's got to a stage or got so bad that they're really really struggling and it's really debilitated on their day-to-day life by this age you've probably realized that binge eating or, or even any eating disorder is something that is very very deep rooted you know and so it shouldn't really come as any real surprise that over 90% of people with an eating disorder, the thing is about 90% have some form of other psychological condition, such as depression, anxiety disorder, or even substance abuse. So there's obviously very, you know, a very, very tight association or very clear association between eating disorders and our mental health. Now, not every binge by the DSM, you know, not every binge is a binge or is binge eating disorder by the, the, the DSM-5 criteria. You know, even even for people with binge eating disorder, a binge can be just an isolated instance. So even if, even if you have been diagnosed with binge eating disorder, some binges might just be an isolated instance. You know, you can accept it and you can move on from it and that's fine. But I guess the next question is, well, why does this vicious cycle of, you know, why what, what triggers this vicious binge cycle 
but also what keeps it going what perpetuates it and there's probably there's a number of, of reasons in here you know I said at the start that you know if you suffer from any sort of eating disorder let, let alone binge eating disorder that you probably need to stop that and you know you, you can't possibly improve your relationship with yourself and with your food with your body if you continue to diet and it's you know it's it's tough because one of the one of the triggers for a lot of eating disorders is change of body shape or over evaluation of body shape or weight so it's it's a very conflicting thing you know and, and some people like some people and even maybe some of you just maybe aren't ready to hear that but there's a very very important reason for it if if you give me a couple of minutes to try and put this cr- across if we look at the main eating disorders like anorexia bulimia and binge eating disorder there's a common observation of sustained dieting or desire to change your your weight or body shape and that can that can come with you know episodes of binging throughout in people with binge eating disorder it is quite interesting a lot of people will be able to go for weeks months you know and successfully lose weight you know and this could be your i know i know i use the reference of bodybuilding quite often here um, it's not just a bodybuilding i think maybe i'm just a little biased of my own background but for a lot of people in that sport they'll go 12 weeks they'll be really rigid and then the t- typical thing is oh i'm bulking now and that's almost the cover for the binge and then they'll bulk away up their their body will fluctuate very very quickly and it'll come back around like okay let's cut down so we can go for you know extended periods of time successfully lose weight successfully change your body shape but then it'll be followed by periods of binging you know and i will say it's, it's not just bodybuilding it could be any other body focused sports you know things like gymnastics things like combat sports where you have to make weight you know people who have to diet to make that weight category or lose weight but then straight after they binge uncontrollably and this can often be why people with binge eating disorder will fluctuate their weight and their body shape from month to month and year to year. So not only are, are binge eating and dieting inherently linked, but they're almost dependent on each other. One of the main issues with dieting is that the individual becomes preoccupied with food to the extent that food literally consumes their every thought. Like Even when, even when they eat, they're thinking about what can I have for my next meal? What where is my next piece of food? What's it coming from? And you know, if you've never experienced this personally, you know, I'd always do say, you know, be thankful because when I mean it consumes their every thought, it literally consumes everything in their head, like to the point where day to day activities, okay, become a struggle. Like, see something like reading your email, or even watching TV or Netflix, or any other task in your life that requires minimal input like that becomes impossible that's the extent to which this is occupying their mind and people will refer to it as I'm, I, I'm, I'm constantly fighting a battle now when the dieting is both extreme and strict when we impose rules that demand some form of restraint it increases the likelihood that the individual will deviate from 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 these rules, these these impossible to adhere to rules. 
you know, I'm not going to eat carbs. I'm cutting out all chocolate and all cake. You know, we will deviate from that at some stage. What happens if you go to cinema? What happens if you have a birthday? You know, at some stage we are going to deviate. And the individual perceives that as failure. Not only is that perceived failure absolutely crushing the individual, but it has even wider implications. You know, these deviations from strict and, and specific rules trigger further binging because we end up thinking, well, what's the point? I'm a failure anyway, so I might as well have X, Y, and Z. And this reflects that dichotomous or all or nothing thinking that is common for both initiating and perpetuating binge eating. At this stage, I am conscious that I'm going ham on that in here, so it's important that we're not actually stigmatizing that and as the one and only trigger for binge eating. You know, not everyone who diets is going to develop binge eating, but also not everyone who has binge eating is a dieter. And so there must be additional things here at play. Some of the social and historical landscape, this idea of, you know, if we look throughout history, there's always been this strive for thinness. You know, the the glorifying of fashion models during, well, right through the 70s, 80s and 90s, the size zero and, and double size zero model, that probably contributed a little bit to the problem wasn't necessarily the diet and it was a societal influence, a historical influencer. Another interesting point is, although it seems to be in the rise in recent years for both males and females, historically binge eating disorder seems to disproportionately affect women, even cross-culturally or even ethnically. Now, this could be again because obviously through 70s, 80s, 90s there was a lot of pressure put on women to look a certain way but it could also you know it's also interesting that traditionally women are are prone to base their self-worth on their appearance you know if you need to have evidence for this we just need to look at our you know look at any sort of parents women get pressurized about right this is your post-pregnancy body this bounce back again that's glorified in society yet when we look at men it's now don't worry you can relax dad bod here we come and that's glorified. And you might even see, you know, I see a lot of people in the fitness industry now moving into that pre and post natal and about doing these, let's do this bounce back post-pregnancy transformation. Yet you'll see often videos of guys going around, just the general public saying, what do you find more attractive? This guy, and it's some model on the front of a magazine, or this guy with the dad bod, and they're like, give me dad bod any day. So we see two completely different things placed on men and women. And again, we do see a rise in, in the actual pressures put on men, but it's still, you know, traditionally it's been women. And so maybe that's a role to play. You know, one of the things that's very difficult is we know where it plays within both males and females. What we don't really know or what, what's hard to differentiate is how it plays across ethnic groups. Simply because a lot of the statistics that we have are based on people who actually seek treatment. Okay? When we look at those statistics, a large majority of the people then who seek treatment for binge eating tend to be Caucasian, middle to upper class women. Again, it's important, please don't infer that it doesn't affect other groups, but rather it's the people who have the resources for treatment. 
Remember, some insurance companies, especially within the US, maybe don't cover certain eating disorders. Family is a massive, massive factor here as well. You know, and I, t- I talk to this about, you know, with clients who have maybe disordered eating, eating behaviours or attitudes. You know, I think it's more of the home environment and the behaviours within the home rather than a genetic link. You know, so for example, there was a study done way back in the 90s. And I say way back in the 90s, that's when I was born. You know, the old age is kicking in. But this study examined the potential reasons for disordered eating between mothers and daughters. Now, the main finding was that if the mother had disordered attitudes, beliefs, or actions around food, then the daughter was likely to pick up on them. Yeah. And I, I've speak to, I've spoken to people before who, you know, they are parents. And one case in particular, I, I had a, a a mother and a three-year-old daughter. And the mother was just in the habit of and getting on the scales every day. And after a while, the daughter started to pick up on that. And at three years old, the daughter the daughter started jumping on the scales as well and then patting her, patting her stomach. It's like, at three years old, like we, we, just, we just don't realise our own attitudes how they feed into the sponges that are children so there's also there's our attitudes beliefs and actions around food and how they pass down through generations but it's also if mothers made comments about daughters about their weight about her appearance and it exacerbated the risk or the actual disorder tendencies within the daughters so there is a big family family element there like we're not totally sure if there's a genetic element it could be because we know that we can have epigenetic changes from that but I would imagine it's it's likely to do with that nurture as opposed to nature there are of course you know other causes but at the end of the day I think it, it's clear to see that there's no one set cause you know the way I see it is that all these different things tend to be different risk factors and as you pile each of them up further and further and further, it increases the probability of some form of eating disorder developing. Now, the interesting thing is that factors which start binge eating aren't necessarily the same things that keep it going. Okay, so obviously if you continue to diet, like you'll see that dieting is central to a lot of that. That's probably the biggest factor. But things like you know adverse moods or thoughts can be difficult to break because binge eating can act as a source of comfort you know some people do think that binge eating is you know it, it gives them more benefit than it does harm so it allows them to you know it gives them a source of comfort a, cor- a place of safety a, a, a place of perceived control it allows them to distract themselves from negative thoughts or experiences or feelings and closely linked to that is obviously relationships and circumstances so for example you know look at yourself or look at a lot of your friends or look at society in general when people get into relationships they generally will put on some weight now sometimes that's just thrown around very loosely but a lot of us have grown up with those societal or traditional or historical influences on how we should look but when we get into a loving and accepting relationship both people, both parties in that relationship tend to gain confidence. When we gain confidence, we then reduce the concerns about our shape, 
we reduce about you know the concerns about how our weight is and that has a positive effect on relationship with food because that person because they're loving and accepting they don't care if we have a six pack or we put on 10 pounds or 15 pounds same way you know if you if you're in a relationship right now would you break up with your partner if they put on 10 pounds i would like to think not and so because the relationship is accepting it's loving and it's empathetic and compassionate we do tend to then reduce the the valuation that we put on our shape now in a toxic relationship or a relationship that's just ended it can have the opposite effect so one party or one person in the relationship can exacerbate or cause or even trigger an eating disorder because they they perceive that their partner should look a certain way or it could be because a relationship ends and it's full of emotion that we try to distract ourselves or try to suppress that emotion through the development of binge eating disorder so there is a lot a lot that goes with this i wish i could talk about this more but at this stage you've probably got an understanding not only of the severity of binge eating disorder but also how complex it is this is this is the same with any eating disorder you know it doesn't matter how much you tell someone to eat less or in someone says maybe if they're anorexic you need to eat more or you need to adjust their training or exercise or whatever it is if we don't address the things that started the disorder and perpetuate it then there's a very high probability the individual will relapse at some point or that the actual thing will continue but i think it's important that before finishing up i'd be doing this whole topic at the service if I highlighted all of these reasons and the background to it but maybe you're struggling with this and you're wondering well that's all great Josh but how do I actually help you know how do I help this how do I support this and that's probably helpful so I want to cover that slightly because I, I can't delve into actual treatment because it's very varied it's very individual some of it require specialization and so i just want to give you a general overview if you've been to the nhs or sort of any other traditional treatment method it's likely that it was very quantitatively driven or very metrically driven and what i mean by that is you come in you get your weight done you get your bmi done and you're told we need your weight at this number we need your bmi at this number and once you get there you can be released you can be discharged you're recovered inverted commas now i'm not criticizing that approach per se but that's where it usually ends you know it doesn't treat the actual root cause and so you end up in this thing that i referred to earlier as quasi recovery even though that they may be discharged they may be you know released as recovered or labeled as recovered we end up in a state of quasi-recovery. Now, not to get into it, but quasi-recovery is essentially where the person has ticked all of the boxes that they can be discharged and released, you know, and whether that's within hospital or outpatient, but they still have a lot of the same emotional tendencies, the same attitudes, the same disordered beliefs, and they're at a high risk of relapse. Now, honestly, I've, I've lost count of the amount of people who have used the phrase you know you don't look like you have an eating disorder you know you know said to them 
while the person's you know totally oblivious to that constant battle that the person's going through and it, this is one of the i guess the biggest misconceptions is that people need to look as if they have an eating disorder of any kind but that's a topic for another time let's go into how we might treat this traditionally the first main thing is hospitalization and you, you might you might think that that's obviously the the place you would go if you want to you want to seek help now believe it or not hospitalization isn't actually that useful you know the the rate of relapse is incredibly high once the person is discharged from hospital but this like you might think that that's surprising but when we talk it through it's it's not surprising whatsoever because think about what we've talked about up until this point all of the factors that influence or trigger and perpetuate eating disorders a lot of those are just removed from the whole equation when we're when we're in hospital say like, for example you don't have the same access to food you reduce the amount of time that you're alone with your thoughts you're probably unlikely to have any privacy if you've been in hospital recently you could be sharing a room with three or four other people you could be sharing a whole ward you probably don't have any privacy which conflicts in with one of the, the factors of secrecy of binge eating disorder or with being in hospital you're actually removed from a lot of the everyday stressors that might trigger a pinch now the other side is that is we shouldn't be against hospitalization because there are many many viable situations in which it does seem appropriate so for example if someone has suicidal tendencies it may offer protection if someone's physical health is deteriorating or at risk or if an outpatient treatment hasn't been effective so there is a role for it the second sort of traditional route is medication now that i find this absolutely fascinating we could talk about this all day but obviously there's a large there's a large emotional component to eating disorders and binge eating disorder in addition to that around 90 percent of people who seek treatment for an eating disorder usually have some other form of psychological symptom or condition now when we prescribe antidepressants to people with binge eating disorder it can reduce up to 60% of the frequency of binges. Now, that's not the surprising point. The surprising thing is that this seems to work regardless of whether the individual has depression or not. The downside of this is that the effect doesn't tend to last. And again, when you think through this logically, it comes clear why it doesn't last. The antidepressants work on the emotional side of binge eating, which is fine. And that's great. But that doesn't explain and that doesn't address probably the main trigger for all of this, which is the individual's evaluation or over-evaluation or their desire to influence their body weight or shape. And so if we haven't addressed that, then that's still going to be working on the individual, which is probably going to trigger binge at some stage. So how do we actually what is the most effective way here what seems to be the most effective thing is using some form of cbt or cognitive behavioral therapy because the main thing here is it actually gets to the root cause of the disorder 
that overvaluation of body and shape, that all or nothing mentality, and any sort of behavioural component that ties into that. Now, we obviously can't get stuck into all of this. There are a lot of real good resources out there, and if anyone wants to sort of get in touch, drop me a message, and I will more than happy to put people in contact with any sort of resources. But generally, when it comes to CBT, there's a number of different ways in which people might do so but as a general structure there tends to be three main phases that the individual will go through the first one is actually to build an awareness around their own eating behaviors around their bin- their binges around their attitudes around food but while also creating a routine because structured routine is, is very important at the same time it's also important to build the education around food for people not even food but you know their body image their weight their shape all of that and so they're building education they're building knowledge around doing the awareness and the routine side of things then the individual then move into the second phase which is actually challenging those beliefs those beliefs that we have those maladaptive beliefs are they actually based in reality or are they our own biases but also we have to develop skills to de- deal with day-to-day difficulties. Because again, it may be that the binge is triggered by our desire to lose weight, but it could also be just a really stressful day that triggers it. And so how do we actually manage and cope with that without using binging? And in the last stage that we move into is trying to reduce the likelihood of a relapse. Now, for me, I think that has to be taken a step further. It's by developing ways and reducing the likelihood of a, a relapse, we're, we're sort of inferring that relapses don't happen. And relapses do happen. They're, they're a natural part of the behavioural change cycle. You, you'll often hear this saying in behavioural change of, you know, fail forward, you know, fail upwards, spiral upwards. You know, these different types of saying because the point is is that we reflect and we relearn why did I binge this time what could I learn from it what could I do differently okay well let's build that back into stage one and stage two and we'll go again so CBD, CBD, CBT does tend to have consistent effects but there are other things so interpersonal psychotherapy You know, it's more of a short term thing that sort of focuses on helping people improve their relationship with others we could do some form of self-guided help so there has been a number of self-guided help books whether it's pure self-help or whether it's guided self-help that does tend to tend to work quite well and that's been you know studied in the, in the literature because again we all don't have maybe the finances or the resources to get support long term from um, a therapist or some form of healthcare professional so hopefully that's give us some good insight and a good run through from painting a picture of what exactly is binge eating disorder what is binging moving through what happens with each binge what triggers it what perpetuates it how do people actually binge the types of foods the size of the binges the binges aren't all the same and that gives us saying 
a little bit of context of, well, where can we move through them? If I or someone I know is suffering with this, I have a, a lot of information now of what exactly is going on. Now, what can I do with it? And that's when we might look into the likes of some form of cognitive behavioral therapy or, or speaking with a counselor or speaking with someone who can help our relationship with food or relationship with herself or body image. But I appreciate this is a massive, massive topic. And if you've sat through all this, I appreciate you even more because this is an area that I'm really, really passionate about. It's something that I can see just the severity of it, the frequency of it, how many people tend to be suffering with it. It's just become more apparent in society. And I want to be able to give good quality information out there so I can actually help people understand well, maybe where is this coming from? Because one of the biggest things that I often find is that people just aren't aware. They, they know that it happens, but they don't even know where to start. And sometimes just having a background is, well, here's what, what a binge might look like. Here's the types of foods. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, the binges I have do tend to be foods that I'm restricting, you know, Monday to Friday. Or I restricted that for the last month and now I'm binging on. So, yeah, maybe I need to work on that. Maybe I need to work on how I break down labels around food you know maybe we talk about you know the the things that cause the binge in the first place or what keep it going maybe it's the psychological or societal issues and maybe you're at a point where you're like you know what this is taking up so much of my life it's so much of my brain capacity it's affecting my quality of life it's affecting my friendships my relationships my job and I just I'm at breaking point here and maybe that is the point where you know, you do get some medication. Maybe you do make that big step of getting some form of antidepressant. And and as I say, the antidepressant doesn't work long term, but it might just give you some breathing space so that you can then go and seek maybe some cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's almost, the medication is almost bridging the gap between those. But it is such a, it's such a really worthwhile topic. So hopefully I've done it a good service here and hopefully it's brought some value to you thanks very much for listening this has been episode 10 of the complete performance podcast with me dr josh williamson if you do have any questions at all if you want to follow up if you want to give me a shout out in social media that would be greatly greatly appreciated but i hope you have a fantastic week or weekend wherever you are and look forward to catching you in the next one